Good morning. For the past two weeks, we've looked at the book of Acts and particularly at the 40 days between the resurrection of Christ and the ascension. We were with the disciples as they watched Jesus ascend into the sky. And his last statement to the church, which we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, was, you shall be my witnesses for me. And then God powerfully, dramatically punctuated that statement in verse 9, for it says that Jesus was taken up from their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. We also read how in verses 11 through 12 that while the disciples looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you up into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And what was the message of those angels? It was this, Jesus will return in judgment. Don't just stand there, get going. And friends, the Christian life should be lived with a sense of urgency, not just us watching as the years, months and years unfold, as our families age. As generations come and go, it should be lived with a sense of urgency, a sense of purpose. God has given us the commission to be witnesses, a term used 39 times in the book of Acts. Do you struggle with being a witness? If the polls are anywhere near accurate, most professing believers are not regularly, consistently sharing, proclaiming the gospel with others. We are all commanded to give a ready answer for the hope that lies within us, and yet most of us hope, hope that we can avoid those awkward conversations with strangers. Or at least we're hoping for kind of the hot lead, right? Where somebody comes asking us the question, who comes with interest, so that we, if we're going to talk about the gospel, be because they initiated the discussion with us. Well, turn to Acts chapter 2. That's where we are this morning with me. The the Bible has some encouragement, has a challenge for us today. First, in Acts 2, we see that the power and motivation for being a witness comes from the Holy Spirit, not from our own strength. That means it does not matter whether you are a great speaker or have seven books of the Bible memorized. God can use you. He can use you. Second, Acts 2 gives us a clear example from God through Peter of what it means to be a witness. So we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21 first, and then we'll pick up the rest as we go. And to remind you of the context, especially from the last few weeks, remember that the first 13 verses of chapter 2 describe the coming of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the disciples in the upper room with the Spirit. One of the miraculous evidences that the promised helper had come at last was that the disciples were all speaking in languages that the various people who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost could understand. And these people did not realize at first that the disciples were speaking their language. Instead, what they heard was this cacophony, right? This this host of different languages being spoken by different people all at the same time, and it led them to sarcastically accuse the disciples of being drunk with wine. So we're going to pick up this narrative in verse 14. Would you stand with me as we read 
acknowledging that this is the Lord's word, holy, inspired, authoritative. It says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, they're not drunk as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above Signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open our minds, our ears, prepare us to receive your word today, to be overcome with the truth, to be filled, motivated, changed by what is said here, to be cut to the heart, even as the crowds were, to ask what shall we do and to know that the answer is to repent, to change, to move in the direction towards holiness in your throne. May you Motivate us that way this morning as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the first thing I notice about Peter's message is that he took a comment from non-believers and, and turned it into a conversation about Christ. And it wasn't just an offhanded comment about the weather or about world events. It was this sarcastic, ridiculing comment that prompted Peter to speak. For the people who had heard the, the very praise of the apostles accused them of drunkenness, saying they are full of wine, and, and certainly in an ironic way, the, they were right because the disciples were not filled with the wine of grapes. They were full of the new wine that was foretold by Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. The wine of the spirit of God's coming kingdom that resulted in these transformed, regenerated, overflowing hearts submitted to God's leadership. And they were full indeed. And of course, none of this was attended, intended by the, the men who were mocking and made the remark. They thought they were making a joke and, and, if anything, sought to divert attention away from this miraculous evidence of the Spirit. And I think we often face similar types of comments. Comments about the church, comments about our lifestyles, comments about Christianity, people make fun of, of our faith, our choices, our priorities, our commitments. Children, you'll find that people will make light of of what you believe and ridicule you and rather than laugh off the comments or shrink away into the background, really as Peter had done, and I love the transformation that we see in Peter, uh, the one who had been accused of being an associate of Jesus who had melted back in and even run away, denying Christ three times, now takes advantage of this opportunity 
and responds, Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The first meal of the Jewish day was at the fourth hour or at 10 o'clock in the morning. Peter's response in his own language and culture might be something along the line, what do you mean? We, we haven't even had breakfast yet. It's, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. In a sense, it was a humorous response from Peter that didn't embarrass the mockers, but also invited them to wonder, well, what then is the cause of, of all of this? And that could have been the end of Peter's response. I, I think so often about how our own conversations go. We make quick defensive replies and passive embarrassed shrugs as, as someone may makes a mocking and, and ridiculing comment. But instead, Peter takes this sarcastic statement and turns it around to a talk of Christ, and he, and he gives a fuller explanation of what really happened. He says, no, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And we see Peter boldly doing the same thing in Acts 3.11. There he and John heal a crippled beggar at the temple gate, and the crowd is marveling. And, and Peter's response is, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, it was us that, that made this man walk. Do you see the opportunity that was there? Somebody giving you a compliment about your life, your children, what God is doing in you, through you, blessing you. Why do you marvel at that? This is not us. This is God working through us. The Apostle Paul utilized similar opportunities. When Paul arrived at Athens, he was greatly disturbed by all of the idols, the false gods of the Greeks. And as a way to start conversation, according to Acts chapter 17, it says, Paul standing in the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with an inscription. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. <laughs> what a fantastic opportunity Paul takes advantage of. Imagine visiting a, a family or a neighbor's home and seeing things like a copy of Fortune 500 uh, magazine on a table with the, the feature article being about making millions of dollars in the stock market. And, and then a framed uh, quote here on the wall that reflects pagan wisdom, but hidden away in the bookshelf amongst a bunch of other uh, very worldly books is a book about the Bible. And you think to yourself, that's my opportunity. It's like the, the inscription to the unknown God, right? Where you say... Really? See, you have a book about the Bible on your shelf. Are you interested in the Bible? Let me tell you about it. Let me proclaim to you what is unknown on your shelf. Friends, Christ is relevant to all of life, and he is relevant because he is the Lord of all things. And therefore, you can legitimately use any subject as a starting point to a conversation 
about Jesus. It could be about you schooling your children at home. It could be about a coworker mentioning something about the elections next year. Use those comments to talk about Christ. And it may surprise you to learn that one out of every four verses in the book of Acts is someone witnessing about the gospel. We have eight major sermons by Peter, one by Stephen, one by James, nine by Paul in the book of Acts. 25%, a total of 19 major discourses, defenses of the faith are in this book, and they underscore for every one of us that as God established his church, it was to be a place where the word was proclaimed. Now, once Peter had an opportunity to act as a witness and was bold enough to take advantage of it, let's look at what he says in verses 16 there again. Notice he doesn't give the crowd the chance to put forth their own guesses as to what was happening. But rather, having gotten their attention, he immediately gives them the reason. The disciples speaking in other languages is a fulfillment of prophecy, specifically that which was spoken by Joel in chapter 2 of Joel. There God had promised that he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And all flesh, of course, does not mean every single living person, since that would mean even those in opposition to God would receive his spirit. But rather, all flesh means all nations, all classes of people. The promise is not just for Jews. It's not just for the leaders or the priests or the special privileged caste of people. No, the promise is for all sorts of people from all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, all flesh. And I've always found it ironic that the, the first major miraculous evidence of the spirit amongst the Jewish people is that they speak in the language of the Gentile nations. Isn't that interesting? That's interesting to me. And as Luke says down in verse 39, for the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So it isn't just for the Jewish people and their children, but even the Gentile who is far away. And it would not be about one's ethnicity or about one's nationality, but about God's calling. God's calling. And so Peter now clearly has the crowd's attention. That's no small feat during the chaos that is the Pentecost festival in Jerusalem. And referring to Joel's prophecy, which also pointed to the establishment of God's kingdom and adding reference to signs and to wonders, all attention is now rightly, appropriately on Peter because something life-changing or at least earth-shuddering, earth-shattering had taken place when Jesus lived, died, and rose again. The last days had begun. And those days had already had multiple signs and wonders take place. Darkening of the day, Jesus' death, an earthquake. Friends, similarly, our witness to the gospel is not just about something that works. I, I mentioned that in reference that our common response is, is that embarrassment, that shrug, the, the quick defensive reply and, and the end of that type of conversation and, and retreat back to something that's familiar. And it makes it seem like this is something that, that I like. This is, this is a choice in my life. You can take it or leave it. 
But the gospel is not just about something that works or that someone should try. Your witness is about life and death. It is about blessing or judgment. And if we don't understand that, then people will just write you off like they do the person that sticks a flyer on their windshield or in their mailbox or that comes walking up the driveway to the front door to give a pamphlet or a magazine. Don't proclaim the gospel with a tentative, apologetic stance. Don't be the bland leading the bland. Be like Peter and the others who delivered God's word with authority and firmness and boldness. As Calvin once said, Peter had something to say and he wanted it to be heard. This is the word of life. If there is no boldness, there is no proclaiming. And by the way, the word boldness from the Greek simply means all speech. It really doesn't have so much to do with the tone of your voice, because that's usually what we think of as bold, you know, somebody being really forthright. It's not so much that as the fact that you are all speech, you are all in, you do not hold anything back. There's no ambiguity, there's no wishy-washiness, and, and let me say one more thing, boldness doesn't mix well with hypocrisy. Somehow having one message at this moment for witness as if we can live the rest of our life in worldly, crass, sarcastic, non-life-giving speech doesn't seem quite right. That's not an all-in mentality. The truly bold person is consistent, and his speech is all speech about the gospel. Let's read what Peter said next, starting with verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And in order to, to help you think through what Peter's saying, I want to restate these verses as if he had been speaking directly to you that day. In essence, what he said was, men, women, children, hear these words. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was no accident. God intended that his son, Jesus, should be the atonement for sin. You were a participant in that crucifixion. You were a part of sinful humanity, a part of the group that wrongfully put him on the cross. But death could not hold him there. 
in the grave. Could not hold the sinless Son of God because God raised him up and this was predicted in the Old Testament by David, by Isaiah, by Ezekiel, by all the prophets. And what I want you to understand in your witness, not only to be bold, not only to be forthright, not only to be heard, how often have you listened to a gospel presentation that used the passages of Scripture but failed to point them directly at you? It's much easier to not pay attention. I constantly have to remind myself that when I am preaching to you the Word of God, that I not make it way over here, but that I keep remembering that it is all of us that the Word is pointing at. And that's what Peter does. He does not let go of his audience. The prophecies may have been spoken centuries before, and by that very nature, they seem distant to the person that's hearing it. Think about being distant in Peter's day. Well, we're 2,000 years after Peter, and you quote things from the Old Testament, and that seems like something from a different culture, a different land, a different time, totally irrelevant when somebody, I want to hear what I contributed to Wikipedia. That's what's relevant to me. Right? Well, the way to make things relevant, Peter shows us, is to make it directed at you and me. Isaiah was speaking to you. Yeah, he spoke a long time ago, but he was speaking to you and he was speaking to me. You, the whole house of Israel, crucified Christ. That means you and me. We crucify Christ. And when you engaged the lost, incorporate them into your conversation, involve them in the drama of redemption, they were at the cross too. They were hammering the nails. They were calling for the crucifixion. There are no neutral parties. And notice how the core focus of Peter's witness is on the earthly ministry, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the continuing heavenly ministry of Christ. It's very similar to what we read by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then the more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And we see how Paul is saying that this is the information that is of what? First importance. First importance is not what the person that you're speaking to feels is their greatest need at that moment. It's more important than you telling other people about your own experiences. I'm not saying that those don't have a factor in the conversation. But first importance, the stuff that can't be left out, it is vital to make sure that our witness is first about who Jesus is and what he did. And what does Peter do next? We pick it up in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Again, let me restate this for you, men, women, children, all your heroes, all the great men and women of the past, they are dead and buried in the ground. Celebrities that were idolized a few generations ago, can you name them all? They're all but forgotten and they will be forgotten. The heroic leaders of the nation, same, they're gone. The, the, the heroes of the faith, we lost recently Tim Keller, not that long before that, R.C. Sproul, but these two are gone. And the memory of them will begin to fade with future generations. All that will be left is a tombstone. But death is not the end. And David, a godly man who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, predicted a thousand years before Jesus ever walked the earth that God would raise up Christ to sit upon the throne of heaven. And that Jesus' resurrection would be the first of many. And God poured out his spirit as a sign of the promise that he would one day raise up all of his people. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And he reigns in heaven. Now as you hear me say that, I know that those are, those are familiar words to you. Those are church words, right? Those are, those are words that have a context that you understand. Because you're familiar with the Bible. And you think to yourself, wow, even with the restatement, kind of in, in words of today, I still can't imagine saying that <laughs> to the lost. They would think I was crazy. Well, you need to realize that the people listening to Peter at that time would have thought that he was in many ways as crazy and blasphemous as you might think a lost person would think you would be seeing these words. Peter was speaking to people that were not yet Christians, people that were Jewish that likely had heard of the most recently crucified criminal who had claimed to be God. They'd heard what was being said about him by the people in town. This is, this is recent events. These are people that would have thought that talk about the Son of God, of Jesus, being exalted, raised up, ascended, sitting at the Father's right hand. Blasphemy. So this is not an easy, this is not like Peter talking to friends who are half informed. This is a hostile audience. But realize what Peter's doing here. He is addressing our worst fear. Everyone fears death. Everyone fears death. Now, sometimes people will come up to you and they will initiate conversation. I was in the post office this past week picking up mail for the church, and the postmaster there at the post office said, Are you still a preacher? 
I don't know that he ever thought that I stopped preaching. I'm still picking up mail from Central Valley Presbyterian Church every single day. Uh, but it was his way of asking the next question. Are you still a preacher? I said, yeah. And he said, weirdest thing happened to me the other day. Do you believe that some things happen for a purpose? Yes. <laughs> and he said, you know, we were, my family and I, we were in our car, small car. He's getting animated by this point. We were in a small car. We were heading up to the casino and up at Jackson Rancheria. And we were going along down by Woodward Reservoir. And this car was coming at us had to have been coming 60, 70 miles per hour, swerved in our lane once shortly before they got to us, and we swerved out of the way, and it hit head on the Dodge Durango that was right behind us. And he said, I stopped the car, I got out of the car, and I went, and what he described next was that he spent 30 minutes until the ambulance came holding this man up because he was choking on his blood, holding his neck up, and holding the seatbelt away so that he could breathe. And he said, I, just, I have not been able to stop thinking about it since Friday. And I said, there's a good reason for that. He said, I speak at so many funerals. And it's the first time for a lot of people that the sobriety, the soberness of death comes to them, and they have those same questions. You have been given an opportunity to have encountered death in that way and to be able to ask these questions without one of your family members having died, without you having died. Let's go to lunch. I want you to be praying for that opportunity in the next week or so that I have with the postmaster of our post office in going to lunch with him. But I say all this because everyone fears death. It's just that most people don't think about it, especially younger people, don't think about death. And so Peter is, is making this relevant to the group. The good news is that Jesus rose from the dead, and because Jesus rose from the dead, we too can one day rise again. And second, Peter is stating that Jesus now reigns in heaven. And I want you to put those two together because there's hope in the first part. But he also says, not only, you don't have to fear death, you have to fear Jesus. <laughs> right? That's what he's saying. Because the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, yes, it is positive for us who have faith in him. But it also has consequences for those who reject him. Because, and we put it back together with what Peter had said earlier, because you and I crucified Jesus, we will one day face the one that we crucified. And thus, while it may be true that we will one day die and the living will forget us, just as he had been discussing this, it will be true that they will forget us. We won't have the luxury of thinking that we die and go into nothingness. Every man woman and child will give account to the king of kings. 
And you see what Peter says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. That's a quote from Psalm 110. It's a psalm of King David. David once said, the Lord, which is in Hebrew, Yahweh, that's the name for God, said to my Lord, that term Lord there is the Hebrew word Adonai, it means an authority greater than the one who is speaking, my master, my king, my Lord. David said, really is saying, God said to my king, and here we have the king of all Israel, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that psalm, that was an important psalm in Jesus' day. It was debated because people understood David's referring, they, at least to the Messiah, but referring to him as Adonai and king. Who, who, would that, who could that be? How was, it, how was it possible that a grandchild of King David, even if the Messiah could truly be David's Lord? And so they debated that psalm endlessly. Jesus referred to Psalm 110 once when he was speaking with the Pharisees. He said in Matthew 22, while the Pharisees were gathered together, he asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Who's, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. That's from Psalm 110. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He asked a question that was impossible to answer from the Pharisees' perspective. How could David be referring to an earthly man, particularly his own descendant, as Lord in that sense? And of course, Jesus knew the answer. The only way is for the Messiah to have been greater than David. In fact, to be the son of God incarnate, such that he would be an earthly descendant of David and yet greater than David. And as the people listened to what Peter was clearly saying about Jesus, that he was the Messiah, and even more, and that they had been responsible for crucifying the only one that could save them from their sin, we read that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You see where we've come? The people who were mocking are now anxious. Jesus, the one that they crucified, now reigns, and he is both Lord and Christ, and all of his enemies will be a footstool at the people, of, uh, at his feet, will be serving him in some capacity, either acknowledging that he is the king of kings or living with him forever. We cannot hide. We cannot escape. You know, it will be a shame for me with Postmaster knowing that time is that great enemy, I think, for the lost. 
And when I say time is that great enemy, I mean there is the ease at which day, every day that passes for this man, that memory of that incident on Friday is going to recede into the background and he's going to be caught back up into the world's narrative. And the questions that he have will seem less and less important. And eventually he'll be absorbed back into the day-to-day flow of the broad path that leads to destruction. And it'll be shame if, if I don't direct him to the heart of the question. Friend, these are the consequences of ignoring this. It's not just that providentially you escape death on this day. You will one day face the king of kings. And there could be eternal death. You think that was bad enough in the car? We're talking about eternal death. When you witness to the teachings of Christ, you must show the people that they are participants in the crucifixion, they sinned against their God, and that their sin has consequences and they will be judged. And that's why verse 37 says that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said, what shall we do? They understood that they were doomed in that sense. Don't make the gospel so rosy that people can say, sounds nice, but I can do without it. What do, what can we do? Peter responds, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off. Everyone in the Lord our God calls to himself. The gospel is for all men, is for all women. Even the worst of sinners have a hope. And so we must, you must share the good news with every person. Call everyone to repentance. That's what Peter does in verses 38 to 39. It's what we all must do. It is the end of our witness to call people. Today is the day of salvation. And see how Peter does this. This isn't just with cliched words. This is, did you see how many times Peter quotes the Old Testament? I alluded to that earlier. The use of the scriptures. In 569 words that make up 26 verses, how much of them are quotes from the Old Testament? Half. Half of these verses, 13. But Peter does more than just quote passages. He uses them in this presentation to make his point, to advance it along. Somehow he got from, what's going on with you guys, to you have a life and death consequential decision. And he talks about sin, God's purposes, God's wrath, God's judgment, God's provision of atonement through Jesus Christ. And he explains all of that using the Old Testament. So friends, one of your goals with your children, you parents, should be that over the course of their years in your home that they have read through and discussed the Bible so much that they clearly know its content. You should want them to know that the Bible talks about Christ. Don't just be satisfied that they know the familiar stories of Noah's Ark and the Exodus and Daniel and the lion's den and Samson. The the Bible's not a collection of stories. 
You want them to be able, like Peter, to show how Christ is foretold in the Old Testament? How does the ark point to the need for Christ? And the depravity of, of man? How, how did the Passover at the beginning of the Exodus foreshadow how Christ would be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world? What does Isaiah say about Christ? What do the lives of Solomon and Josiah and even Ahab, what do they say about Christ or the need for Christ? Have, them, have that discussion be in the, around the table, during the school day, in the mornings when you're getting up, whatever it is, during your devotionals as families when you share, so that when they share the gospel, they know the word of God. And the result is what we see in verse 36, that the Holy Spirit uses the truth, uses his word to draw sinners to himself. Because what are they hearing, friends? They are hearing the shepherd's voice. Why speak the word of God? Because the word of God is living. Because it's God's word. And the shepherd said, when I am lifted up, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice. And I will draw my people, my sheep, to myself. And that's exactly what happens. Peter speaking the word of God, half of his, half of his speech, half of his witness being the words of the Old Testament. We have the, the privilege of having the Old and the New Testament to be able to use. But when speaking that, what happens? The startled sheep recognize the shepherd. And the gospel pierces all the way to the heart. Well, when the people of Jerusalem that day heard Peter's words, it was the start of what we talked about a few weeks ago. That concentric circle movement of the gospel going out to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we see it right here. 3,000 people in Jerusalem had a change of perception regarding Christ. They had condoned. Even if they weren't there personally, they had condoned the sacrifice of the Lord of the universe and their lives could never be the same. They couldn't just walk away. It was too significant. They either had to reject or accept what was being told them. Do you know King Jesus? Listen to Peter's challenge. You have been suppressing the truth of this Jesus Christ who is the King of glory. Some of you may have heard these truths your entire life. And it is washed over you like so many stories being read from the Bible. So many words being spoken at you but you have been suppressing the truth of this Christ who is the king of glory. You crucified him and are separated from him. And no matter what you do, even if it is to try to be a good person or to attend church weekly, whatever it is, you are missing the purpose to which God has firmly called you if you have not submitted to him. Repent. Understand the truth for what it is. If you do not serve the king, you will receive his judgment. 
And the good news is, if you are called of God, if you have faith in Christ, if you call upon him, recognizing that you are a sinner, if you confess him as the Son of God, the Savior, the one whom Jesus, the one whom God rose, raised from the dead, that he died for your sin, then friends, that promise of salvation is for you. But you must begin to live in obedience. Repentance is more than just confession. Confession is the start of repentance. Confession begins with a new direction for your life. Repent, serve the Lord, be baptized, live amongst the body of Christ in obedience to the faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I appeal to you as Peter once did, what Christ has done, is doing, will do, demands a response. You can't, friends, you cannot just hear what I spoke to you today and shrug it off. As Peter says in verse 21, and it really is the key point in his entire sermon, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon him, ask for mercy. Today, friend, is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, you are the mighty God who has provided a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. It was the only way. It wasn't going to be through our good works. It wasn't going to be through right words. Lord God, you sent your Son. He died for us. He bore the wrath against sin that was due to us and for us. Lord God, we crucified Jesus. But thank you that he also bore the sins of his people. I pray that if there's anyone here that hears these words and for them, the talk of the gospel and the cross and salvation have been foreign thoughts and terms, and there's always been the thought that there was another day. I pray that the reality of life, the significance and seriousness of the consequence of, of ignoring Jesus would be heard today. May your gospel go out, your word go out, and fulfill its purpose. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.